0: I am Brooklyn based psychotherapist Nikita Banks, and I am your host of Black Therapist Podcast, formerly of Black in Therapy. Black Therapist Podcast is the podcast where we discuss the unique issues people of color face. We're dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Black Therapist Podcast, or you can follow us on our Facebook fan page at Black in Therapy, or my fan page at Nikita Banks LMSW. You can email us fan mail, general feedback, and show suggestions at Black Therapist Podcast at gmail.com. You can sign up for our mailing list at Black Therapist Podcast.com. Tweet, share, like, leave us comments on. On whatever platform you listen to us at, whether it be SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, Apple Music, Stitcher, etc., we are wherever podcasts are found. Hey guys, so welcome to this week's episode. So I'm super excited. I've been coveting our guest this week for a really long time, ever since I met her at an event that Essence had where she was speaking. So we have Dr. Corinne Glover on today, and she's a psychiatrist here in uh, the Bronx, New York. And she discusses the unique issues people of color face and the stigma of dealing with a diagnosis and having to take psychiatric medication. And so we had a long conversation, well overdue. And I was excited to have this conversation because as somebody who provides mental health care For clients in the community, a lot of times their hospitalizations are because they have a diagnosis. They know they have a diagnosis. They know that medication reduces symptoms, yet they won't take it. And usually it's because of cultural bias, but it's also because of stigma. So I definitely wanted to have her on the show. This is a longer show than usual. And so what I think I'm going to do is what we have decided to do is to have this as a 2 part episode. Because there won't be a show next week. Now I say there won't be a show, but there may be because I have a lot of stuff I want to talk about. And um, you just have to watch our Instagram and our Twitter pages and our social media pages to find out if there will be a show next week. But there may be, or there may be not. And let me tell you why. So I have launched our first, and I say our because I do everything I do for you guys, but our first mental health course. And building that course has taken me some time. I'm also working on a new paid course. The course that I launched this week that I'm going to talk about is F-R-E-E. The next course is a paid course, but you'll get a chance to work directly with me to um, resolve some issues that you have in building healthy, happy relationships. So there's a workbook, there's videos, there's one-on-one work. There's webinars. That stuff takes a lot of time and brain power to create. And I want it to be the best that it can be. So, in anticipation of developing my first paid course, what I decided that I was going to do was release the free course. And so, this week, we launched a free course. And the only way to get access to it, you guys, is you go on blacktherapistpodcast.com and sign on to our mailing list. And in the mailing list, once you're added to it, I will give you access to the free course. Or you can send me an email at blacktherapistpodcast.gmail.com and just say, hey, I wanted the information for the free course. And then I will add you to the mailing list and I will send you the free course. So it's F-R-E-E. And some of the things that you're going to learn in that course is we're going to discuss how to find yourself a mental health provider and some resources that are free as well as paid because I think you guys should not mind paying to invest in your mental health. Your mind and your thoughts are the vehicles that drives every single thing that you will manifest in your life. So it's the biggest investment that you will ever make, the most important investment you will ever make. And therapy is not as expensive as people think it is, so I discussed seven ways that you can find a therapist, including some free resources. One of the things that you will learn is how to develop your own mental wellness toolbox and what you should put in your mental wellness toolbox. We also talk about we also talk about how to deal with a loved one who is dealing with distress and how to support them in positive ways. And we talk about what to do if you or a friend or family member is newly diagnosed in the best ways that you can support them. So there are six videos or seven, I don't remember, but they're, like, they're video components where I discuss um, some of the things that you can do to, to develop proactive mental wellness plans, proactive means before something happens. You don't want to react when something happens because usually when something happens and we're reacting and we're untrained, we just don't know what to do and so we end up dealing with things in inappropriate ways. So we're going to get into this week's episode and we welcome Dr. Corinne Glover. And first introduce yourself.
1: So I am Corinne Glover. I am a psychiatrist I am a black woman. I am (laughs) African-American. I'm a Howard graduate. Um, And I sure am bison all day. And uh, I I love what I do.
0: And so we met, I don't know if that was a year ago or two years ago.
1: I want to say, yeah, about a year and a half
0: at this point. Okay, so Essence did an event. And I think it was about a year and a half ago because... I believe at that same time, I was in the issue of Essence. I was talking about my mental health journey in that issue of Essence, and I ended up going to the event, and I met you with one of my friends, Helen. She owns a dope online boutique called Tracy Chambers Vintage. You guys should go check that out.
1: Helen is my soror. Helen went to Howard. She's Alpha Chapter, a.k.a., and uh, I am too
0: yeah she rolls deep with the Howard girls, so it was you and all of the Howard girls and I didn't go to Howard, but shout out to my niece she she went to social work school at howard graduated a few years ago actually she, she's licensed and she practices in d c But you guys roll deep, so I told you at the time I definitely wanted to have you on the show, but I, we were just starting out. So I'm so glad that we reconnected on Instagram and you're here today because there's so much I want to talk to you about when it comes to Black people, mental health, and the stigma of taking drugs.
1: Mm-hmm. Medication.
0: Yeah, medication. Well, you know what? And let me say this. I often speak to my interns about drugs because there's also a stigma around street drugs. And I get it. Crack is cheaper than Prozac. And it really boils down to not having the access, not having the information, you know, the the panic around taking street drugs versus pharma. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think access is a huge uh a huge issue. And and like you said, stigma and and for some people, I think the the, the need is so urgent to feel better and feel connected to somebody or something that when a dealer comes around or when a boyfriend or a partner comes around with a particular drug, no matter what it is, somebody, somebody who's in the, the right for the, the right or wrong frame of mind, however you want to see it, in a certain frame of mind, they're going to want to feel com- connected to something no matter what. So,
0: yeah, let's talk. And I speak to my interns, like I said, um my office is in Bedside Brooklyn, and so when my interns talk to me about, "Oh, well, that person is using drugs." And I'm like, well, what what are what are they treating?" Like, what do you think they're treating? Because certain street drugs treat certain symptoms. They give you they give you different feelings, certain results. So, you want to talk to the people a little bit more about that.
1: Sure. So, I think um some of the, I always feel like everything I learned in med school um, at this point is wrong, um, or at least the the knowledge has advanced so much and the literature has advanced so much that um, that I think it's worth um, refreshing our 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 information about drugs, street drugs that is, and about medications which we'll get to, but often enough. There's new research that shows that often enough when people are feeling down, they don't have healthy connections to other people, they're unemployed, they're feeling very down or disconnected, they will reach for a drug. So I'm very preoccupied with social determinants of mental health, right, these societal systemic factors that impact mental health. Of course, people are adults or or getting there, and they can make decisions for themselves. But I'm very, very interested and and often astounded by how predictable people's behavior is when certain systemic factors are in place. So we know that when. People are unemployed when people are raised by a parent or or they're not raised by their parents at all or they're very disconnected from loved ones. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with adverse childhood events uh, scale, the ACEs, um, right? We know that when people have a certain number of those adverse childhood events, they weren't raised by a loving uh, parent or guardian and they didn't have anybody to kind of – shape their way of dealing with the world in a healthy way, there wasn't anybody to show this person how to love and live in a healthy way, people are just almost destined. It's, it's nearly impossible to not end up on drugs or in unhealthy relationships. So, so one of the things that I'm um, always thinking about, especially when I see somebody who's struggling with drug use, is how does this drug help you? And I'll ask the person, what what does this do for you? And they'll say, you know, I need it so that I can get along with my family when they're around. Because this person maybe has a history of trauma, and they need to kind of tune out a little bit because their family reminds them of being sexually or physically abused. There's other people who say, I need to take something before I get on the subway. I've had so much trauma. I've been attacked. So many times in my neighborhood, when I'm on a closed subway car, I feel like I'm going to explode. I need to do it so that I don't hit anybody and that I don't end up um, yelling at people or acting out. So it's not like the drug doesn't serve a purpose. The substance always does, just like you said.
0: You sound like a social worker, (laughs) talking about all of the the social causes.
1: (laughs) I'm saying, right? Because that, I mean, I trained at at Long Island Jewish. Booker Hillside is now part of Northwell and Hofstra School of Medicine. And I got my MPH at Columbia um, Mailman School of Public Health. So I, and I have worked side by side with social work for for my entire career. So I'm sure we rubbed off on each other over the years.
0: I'm pretty sure. What do you, what do you feel about using marijuana to treat anxiety?
1: So I definitely think my position has evolved. I was raised um, very, very anti-substances, mostly because there was a lot of substance use in my extended family, and it was devastating.
0: Yeah, me too. So, I mean, I saw
1: relatives who succumbed to hepatitis C and, and liver cancer that developed from the untreated hep C because they had started off sharing needles because they were addicted to heroin, right? So, That was my background, and so my mother often would say, like, just promise me you will never, ever use drugs. So I promised her, right? And and I had enough evidence that made it more than clear to me that, like, substances can be devastating for people and their families. That said, I have a number of patients who smoke marijuana, and they find it very, very helpful. And I'm not in a position to say don't use it. I, I can certainly say, like, if we've tried all of the medications I have to offer and they don't help but marijuana does, your lived experience means way more to me. And, and your ability to keep coming back to me so we can keep on checking in with each other means way more to me than the stance, my, my you know, formerly inflexible stance, you know?
0: I'm, I'm the exact same with you. Like, I grew up in an era where as long as I don't use drugs, I'm okay. So as long as I didn't become a crackhead or like a heroin addict or something, I was okay. As a result, a lot of my generation are alcoholics. Like a lot of, uh, yeah. So a lot of like my my family members and friends. And it, it never dawned on me until one of my girlfriends was like, you don't realize that everybody is an alcoholic. And I was like, not really <laughs> because... I didn't I drink a lot more now on my podcast. But I drink a lot more now than I did before. But even now, it's like maybe two drinks if I go out or whenever I have the time to go out. But I used to I used to just feel like I have a natural high and I'm gonna just not drink or not not use drugs or smoke or anything. But you know, full full disclosure, I have tried marijuana in the past. And I just feel like because I see so many Black and Latino young men, of of like eighteen to twenty five years old, who are just kind of like numbed out on the marijuana, it's not. It's not what it used to be. Like whatever they're putting in this weed now, is very scary. I don't I don't really know how to explain it, but I'm like I like I I had to I had the exact same conversation your mother had with you with my son. I have a son who's who's in college and I'm like please promise me you won't use use drugs. Like you please promise me that you won't like I don't even want him smoking marijuana because I don't even know what's in it anymore. And the effects of what I'm seeing on the psych ward and the effects of what I'm seeing in my practice, it it just scares it scares me. Uh
1: I yeah, I have definitely seen the way that marijuana can be uh, almost used for kids who we would, from a psychiatric perspective, consider prodromal. So the kids who may um, be more prone toward uh, a psychotic illness like bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, often those kids will gravitate toward marijuana Um, because of its kind of mellowing sedative effects. Unfortunately, for those kids, it can, and as you well know, I'm sure you've seen this in your practice, it can sort of propel them towards psychosis. So I think there is, and these, like nobody knows, uh, unless they know that they have a certain family history that predisposes them toward it. But of course, as brown people, we generally, or just as humans, we don't talk about, stigma and the fact that we have a relative who may have a psychotic illness, we try to keep that under wraps. So then the kid goes, tries marijuana, feels good, and then, and then they may have a psychotic break, right? So, so that's one thing that I think that young people need to know is that you may be putting yourself at greater risk for psychotic illness when you smoke weed, best talk to your family, find out if anybody in your family has a history of depression or any other or any psychotic illness. Depression is not the same thing as psychotic illness. I want to make that clear, but talk to your parents and like that's I think a really important thing to keep in mind. And then also, like you said, some of these kids are using so that they can disconnect from the world. And my thing is Learn how to disconnect from the world in healthy ways first and guaranteed healthy ways like mindfulness or sports or some kind of meditation practice or running or something. Like, give that a try first, please. Try everything else that doesn't involve a substance first before you reach for the weed.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we know what the research is, that a, a person's brain isn't fully developed until they're 25. And so adding those extra chemicals into the system and and mix, I I just, it scares me. I have a client, he's a former client now, but he had his first psychotic episode. I think he was 19 and he, he came to me last year for a time and we, I kept telling him like we, I can't, I don't know what to treat to be honest, because you smoke so much marijuana and I can't get you to at least stop for at least a prolonged period. Like maybe if you stopped for like two months or three months, we could try to figure out. And and he refused to go to the psychiatrist. Like he refused to go. I mean, even if you went once a month and decided not to take the medication so that they can monitor you, just just go and I feel like career-wise, you kind of have an uphill battle when it comes to treating our people. How do do you deal with that?
1: Well, first of all, I love that you identify that I really like working with communities of color. I got into this career because I wanted to improve life for the people who are the most down and out and also the people who I felt the most equipped to treat, meaning I'm familiar with black and brown people. I grew up around a lot of black and brown people. And I think
0: you are black and brown people.
1: I am. I'm black all day. So I, I'm deeply committed to to this work. And yeah, I think part of the, the good part about it is that people come to see me because they're, they're motivated in some kind of way. So I just try to get in touch with what the patient is motivated by and what the patient wants to accomplish. And we try to tap into that. So in some ways, I know my role. I know that even if I envision something greater for the patients and they envision for themselves, we still have to start with what the patient wants.
0: Yeah, yesterday I had a... Black man on the psych ward. And um, I, he's a client that I've seen previously. He He's definitely paranoid. But he, and he's also disorganized in, in in speaking with him. Like, it's really hard. He He rambles, he mumbles on. It's hard to kind of, like, get him to finish and complete a thought. I would have to ask him questions more than one time. But the content of what he speaks about is so... I'm like mind blown every time I speak to him. So I went to go see him a few days ago and he was talking to me about doctors and he was, he's a black man and he was saying how the whole system is rigged against him and how you know the doctors only care about him in the hospital because they're getting paid for him and he's like why is it that they only want me here because they're getting a check for me but when i'm in outside and i'm healthy they don't get paid for healthiness they should get paid for healthiness and he talks about the effects of like racism every single time i see him i know that racism and oppression plays such a large part on what he has going on in his mind and he talks about like the Tuskegee experiment. And he talks about all of these, you know, conspiracy theories, but they're not, conspira- like they're based in fact, if you know black history in this country and the history of using black people and in, in medicine for like nefarious reasons. And it makes it very difficult for me who knows exactly what he's talking about to say that he's crazy. He's disorganized in that, but the content of what he's saying it, it just breaks my heart because every time I'm like, you're so smart and you're so educated. And I, I was like, but if I could just get you to take your pills, it it things would be different. And his mom is also mentally ill because so I've had to do family work. And so the challenge with Black people and getting us to take medication, especially Black men and Hispanic men, it that part of this career is very daunting for me. Um, it, it's it's emotionally draining for me because my black men are my partners. Like, I, I love them. And it's it's hard for me. I'm getting emotional a little bit. But it's hard for me to deal with treating them in the way that I would like to because they're so combative. But I, I, I know the history, and I'm just trying to figure out what we can do to either change the stigma or change the, or change the narrative.
1: So one of the things that I keep in mind is when when people don't want to take their medications but they're still um, suffering, I try to figure out where the common ground is. Like, what can we all agree on? And so one of the things that that I I'm not I'm not there to tell my patient that their delusions are fake or that, or for my paranoid folk that that nobody's after you, or that the world is not conspiring sometimes to keep you down. My, that's not my position. Um, and, and I don't think that's my role, and that's certainly not what they want to hear. So, um, what I try to do is is get in touch with um, what what keeps them out of the hospital. So for the patient who doesn't want to take medication, to me, what I try to do and, and what has worked for me in the past is um, think about all the forces that are out there that can hurt you. I notice you deal with them so much better when you are on your medication. I'm not going to tell you that, that the Tuskegee experiment didn't happen. I'm not going to tell you that. But, also, but your ability to fight back, your ability to stay organized, to have control of your thoughts and your actions, it's better when you are on your medication or when you're engaged in treatment. And usually they can agree with that, that like when, like, I, you know, you I'm sure you've had these patients who they couldn't get along with their landlord, mostly because when they were psychotic or, or very ill, they were doing things to destroy their home. They may have punched because they heard things coming from the walls or something like that. They may have punched some holes in the wall. And they then ended up with a terrible relationship with their landlord. Well, were they on their medications when they were punching holes in the walls? Probably not. In which case, you get along better with your landlord, or you have less trouble, or there's less voices, or there's less difficulty when you're on your meds. So that's one thing I do. And then, but you also mentioned the self care part, which I think is super important, right? And and part of I think the work that you're doing is so important, and the work that we're doing is so important because. Somehow, for the psychotic person or for the paranoid person, they begin to, to believe very intensely that other people have power over them. And our work, I think, is about letting people know, no, no, no that power is inside of you. And how, let, let's figure out how we can restore your power. And, and where does your power come from? And so sometimes when we deconstruct Other people, their their notions of power, it turns out that they they think they're powerless when they're really not.
0: Yep. Yeah. What I what I what I noticed about treating people of color is that we don't even recognize that we have choices in the matter. And a lot of us are passively allowing life to happen to us rather than actively making decisions and doing things in service of the life that we want. And um, I'm transparent. I've talked about it on the show about being diagnosed with depression. Um, I also think I had a little bit of PTSD. Uh, But so it's very difficult for me dealing with clients who are paranoid or diagnosed as paranoid when they come to me. And they are victims of trauma or they lived in the projects. Like I had a client. He grew up in Queensbridge and he was attacked and he was in the military. He had a paranoid schizophrenia diagnosis not PTSD. I'm like, what?
1: Yeah. You know, I think PTSD and complex trauma are wildly underdiagnosed in our
0: community. Very much so. Very much so.
1: Right. I, it, and that, yeah, that, that's something I'm pretty passionate about is equipping. So I'm the director of behavioral health, uh, adult behavioral health at Montefiore in the Bronx. And so that's, I, I oversee the, the mental health Uh, services for, for 21 primary care clinics, and I'm like, you cannot be working in the Bronx and not, and among people of color, people who have immigrated to this country and come across war and famine and sexual trauma and political violence. You can't be treating them and only see depression and generalized anxiety. You have to be able to diagnose the complex trauma and accept that. And then also the secondary trauma that we've endured simply by being people of color in a society that is in many ways hierarchical and we are at the bottom. And we've got 300 years to talk about.
0: I've had a conversation with my best friend the other day and she was telling me about PTSD, and she had a PTSD diagnosis, and she I had an incident where she was um, violated at work. So going through the court case and going through everything that she went through, so I was like, "Is that you know when you were diagnosed?" And she said, "Yeah," and I said, "Well, I think I have PTSD as well," and she was like, "How does that work?" Because most people think it's just about veterans, and so I mean, complex trauma. I, I mean, I I gave it a label. My my therapist didn't tell me that that's what it is, but I know. Um, I, I had a car accident of years ago but since then driving if the car gets too close to me and I was hit by a drunk driver if, if a car gets too close to me I, my, I start to panic and I have <laughs> sounds weird saying it out loud but I have rituals that I do and so I was telling her I was like, I've never even really addressed it in therapy because I just feel like that works for me it calms me down in the moment and then I could just go back to being normal <laughs> But, you know, I told her, I was like, I don't even think it's that one thing. It's just repeated exposure to violence and trauma. I grew up in bed in the 80s and 90s. Like, I've seen so many different things. I, I was looking about talking to her about high school and how we had a kid who killed himself the first period in high school while we were there. And I'm like, just kind of having all of these little tiny incidences and you think that it doesn't bother you, but the revid- residual effects of them on you psychologically. like It's literally like taking a penny and putting it in a jar. And then over the course of a lifetime and the course of a year, and those are all traumatic incidences. And then your jar gets way too full and your, your body doesn't know how to deal with it. After a while, you just kind of stay in this general fight or flight mode. And what do you do? You have to learn to, to have coping skills to deal with it. So yeah, I've gotten a little bit better in terms of driving and stuff Because the, ac- the accident happened years ago And when I had the conversation with my therapist about it He was just like girl But you, as you know Once you learn all of these psychological theories and stuff you see, you see stuff and you start to diagnose yourself But I really think because of you know, A lot of my trauma history I've definitely suffered a lot of Complex trauma over the years And I've just had to learn how to have you know, Positive ways to, to cope With them
1: I think um your journey is super important um, as far as uh, having compassion and empathy for your clients. Um, to add to that, I think there's a couple of books that helped me understand complex trauma. One of them was um, by Judith Herman, Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman. Really helpful for, for, for clinicians, certainly. And I think for regular lay people, to understand the role that trauma has played in their life and what its manifestations can be. And then also, um, I think there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score um, that I've heard is also really good. I haven't read it, but I've heard it's wonderful.
0: Yeah. He's in, he's in a scandal right now, but I know who's exactly who you're talking about.
1: Oh my gosh. Scandal. Okay. We, we can talk about that after.
0: (laughs) Yeah some sort of, we, uh, we actually, it leads into where I'm going. So, so a lot of the time I have worked in environments where there were a lot of white psychiatrists. And I've also worked in environments where I've had white psychiatrists, although there was a psychiatrist that I worked with of color. He was, um, Asian and he was super cool. Probably the only one in the office, honestly. But in that environment, they were treating a lot of people of color and, you got a lot to contend with now because there are a lot of psychiatrists, older psychiatrists who've been in the field for a while and they've kind of been giving the field a bad name. I feel. And there seems to be a move, which I understand, towards just medication management, but not so much psychological treatment in psychiatry right now. So, I mean, how do you feel about that move towards because the social workers are doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to a lot of the patients in terms of like getting to know them spending the most time with them doing weekly one-on-one sessions and the psychiatrists are seeing clients for 15 minutes
1: do you mean for uh for folks in the outpatient setting or on the inpatient setting
0: well in outpatient setting where i worked previously yeah yeah And with a lot of my clients that I refer to psychiatrists, yeah, they're not. I don't think they're spending enough assessment time with this psychiatrist.
1: I think I have definitely had patients who came to me and complained that the last psychiatrist they had, they could only see them for fifteen minutes. So here's the hard part: is that the way the way our healthcare is set up, and the way we reimburse clinicians for their work. If, if psychiatrists who take insurance spent 45 minutes with each of their patients, they would go out of business, mostly because we've got enormous student loan debt, right? Like when I came out of med school, I owed a quarter of a million dollars. Nice. Right. So it is financially impossible to, see, to, to spend all day seeing patients for 45 minutes and take insurance. If I if I could charge what I wanted, then I could do it, but my rates would be somewhere close to like $500 an hour so that I could pay my student loans and live in a home. So, and I'm not talking a big home. I'm just saying to be able to, right.
0: No, I agree with you. I understand because I'm in private practice now and I'm trying to figure out a different business model, if it wasn't for the fact that I do consulting work now that I'm taking insurance and now they're requiring that everybody takes Medicare and Medicaid, I don't know what I'm going to do if this is the like, I, I could not possibly, I will not, I cannot sustain this as a business model taking insurance. And I know it, it kills me because my people want to use their insurance. My people tend to believe they don't have the money to do it. So I'm trying to figure out a a different business model to still be in service of people of color, still give them affordable care and still be able to like keep my lights on. I think the way I see organizations making that adaptation is they're not hiring psychiatrists anymore. They're hiring a lot of nurse practitioners.
1: Right. So yeah, we're in this together because again, the way healthcare is set up, our Medicaid and Medicare governmental organizations and the people they've contracted out to do the to handle the health insurance agreement, they have not prioritized mental health, and the way that they keep it low on the priority list is to not pay for it or to pay very little for those services. So, One of the things that uh, the Obama administration tried to do was at least have um, increased reimbursement and at least make it so that whoever was providing the service, whether it was psychiatrists or internists who were doing the screening and some of the treatment, that we got paid the same amount. Because for some time, psychiatrists were repaid less than other clinicians. And so we were like, wait a minute, right? So it's a constant battle, and I'm not sure um, there are certain ways that the government is trying to address some of those disparities. Um, but part of it is so that we work in teams. So at Montefiore, we are on the cutting edge with what we call integrated or collaborative care And so our model is that we rely heavily on social work to do the screening and the treatment of mental disorders in primary care, right? Because as it is, about 70% of all depression and anxiety is treated in primary care. People don't want to go to a psychiatrist. It takes forever to get an appointment, and it costs a lot. They don't want to go to a mental health clinic because typically their symptoms are not on the spectrum of seriously mentally ill. So... They – people go to their primary care doctor and say, I have chest pain sometimes, particularly when I'm arguing with people like my husband, right? And so the doctor will say, you know what, let's let's screen this. So now we just formalize the process. If that's what's going to happen anyway, let's just get a social worker to be in primary care to engage the patient around how they're doing. Also, if we need to tackle obesity or high blood pressure or diabetes, Social work is involved in all of that as the therapist so using evidence-based treatments like motivational interviewing and behavioral activation and um, things like that to address depression and anxiety. And so by doing that, they may see psychiatrists for 15 minutes, to simply, and the psychiatrist is relying heavily on everything that's been done by social work prior to that patient coming to see them.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to address that too. I feel like psychiatry is a dying field. Now, wait a minute. If you want to hear how Dr. Corinne answers the question about the possibility of psychiatry being a dying field, as well as addressing the issues of cultural competence in psychiatry, please tune in next week for the second part of this episode. You've listened to another episode of the Black Therapist Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Nikita Banks, licensed clinical social worker, and this is Black Therapist Podcast, formerly Black in Therapy. If you are looking for any information, any resources about today's show, or if you just want to drop a line and say hey and subscribe to our mailing list, you can do so at our website, blacktherapistpodcast.com. You can send us emails at blacktherapistpodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, today, please like, comment, share, and subscribe because we want the show to grow as organically as we possibly can. And we cannot do that without you. Thank you for listening. Be well.